in the last week of Jesus' life and why. Next Sunday is going to be particularly poignant because I'm going to deal with the why of what happened in Jesus' life. And today I wanted to do something a little bit unusual. You know, we're coming up to Resurrection Day in three weeks, uh, April the 16th. And I wanted to talk about the things that went on in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, Some people call it Holy Week. I think Jesus lived a holy life, so every day he lived was Holy Day. And I'm kind of different about special emphasis at certain times. You know, people give things up during Lent and stuff like that. That's okay. But I think we ought to live a life of obedience and sacrifice to Jesus every day. And uh, not just on certain special days. It's popular with people because they can do that and feel good about doing what they want to the rest of the time. But I think we need to focus on what would please God every day. So we're going to be dealing with what really happened the final week of Jesus' life this Sunday and next Sunday. And I was going to deal with with this part of it briefly. And then last night the Holy Spirit said, no, no, I don't want you to deal with that briefly. You worry about, don't worry about next Sunday or how you're going to split this up. Here's what I want you to do today. So today... I'm going to deal with a part of the last week of Jesus' life. This actually happened probably on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. And it's something that you always hear in a series on eschatology, which is a 50-cent word that means end-time events. We always hear this preached in the context of studies in Revelation, studies in end-time prophecy. But we never hear it talked about during... a a concert or a a consort or a talk about what happened in the last week of Jesus' life. And there's a reason that Jesus spoke about this as one of the last things he ever said. So turn to Matthew 24. It is one of the great passages on end-time prophecy. This can't be wrong because it came from Jesus himself. And what what I'm going to do today, I don't have an outline. The Lord's prompted me He said, I don't want you to do a three or five point outline. I want you to forget about homiletics that they teach you in in college. And I want you to just walk through this, these two, I'm going to walk through two chapters of scripture today. And as we read, and I'm going to ask you to do something for me. With me, it's difficult not to read ahead, but I'm going to ask you when I stop reading and start commenting on the scripture, just stop right there, lift your eyes up because I don't want you to get ahead of me because it'll get lost. The, The impact of what I'm saying will get lost as you read further. So we're just going to walk through these two chapters today and talk about each part of them as we get to them. This is all going to be from my heart to yours, and it's going to be spontaneously prompted by the Holy Spirit. And I'm believing God to to speak to hearts today. And listen, when you listen to a message, don't just listen to it with your own life in mind. Think about arming yourself with the information so that you may be a better, more powerful witness to people that you know who need Jesus. We as Christians, every message we listen to shouldn't just be consumed for our own benefit, but we ought to consider it equipment and equipping to, to empower us to go out into this world and do the works that God sent us to do. You know, that is the pastoral job. My job is to equip the saints. The saints' job, which is you, The saint's job is to go out into the world, and mine too, and to impact lives. We don't just impact lives in here, amen? Amen. Main place we impact lives is in the world and the marketplace out there. So listen to this with an an idea of how how can I apply this to my life, but also what does this mean to me in terms of equipping me to minister to others? Matthew 24, I'm reading from the New International Version. A word about that. I had a discussion about that this morning. There is a difference between King James and NIV. Original King James written in 1611. And the difference is the King James Version. Now I know there are a lot of groups out there that are King James only. King James only. Let me tell you what King James would do if he were alive today. He would make a translation in modern day English. Which is exactly what he did in 1611. This is how they talked. I'm not opposed to the King James Version of the Bible. Don't get me wrong. But there is an inherent weakness in the King James translation. I don't want to diminish your faith in it. But the inherent weakness is this. It is translated word for word from Greek to English. The problem with that is there are many words in the Greek language for which there is no commensurate single word in English that accurately defines the Greek word. So the NIV, and I don't like everything about the NIV either. 
I'm not saying it's the best or anything like that. It's just one of many. I happen to be reading from it, but I felt like I wanted to say this to you. The NIV did what's called a dynamic translation. And instead of we're going to translate this word for word, they adopted a philosophy which says we're going to use phrases that more accurately explain this word in the Greek for which there is no equal word in English. One word doesn't always describe it. So we're going to use a phrase that will more, more accurately describe the Greek word in English, which makes it a more accurate translation. Uh, don't get hung up on translations, but there are a couple of versions of the Bible out there I would be careful about, and one is the Message Bible. Be very careful about the Message Bible, all right? I won't get into all that. Please don't ask me on email to, to get into it and explain it all. I'll do a teaching on it someday in the future, all right? Matthew 24, NIV. This is probably Tuesday or Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. He is with his disciples. He ha- they have been to the temple in Jerusalem, the, the temple that Herod built, and they're leaving now, and th- this conversation arises. So there's the setting. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And so they left the temple and they went to the Mount of Olives. Tell us, they said, what will, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So now here the disciples want to know, all right, how's, it, how's this going to end? What, what's the rest of the story? Tell us about the end times. And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. It is interesting to me that the first thing Jesus said when talking about end-time philosophy and end-time prophecy is deception. Watch out that no one deceives you. Now, now stop a minute. Don't read ahead. Stop and let me ask you a question. Uh, Pastor Roland has on a red shirt. Is that true? Everybody believes that's true. Raise your hand. Is that all truth? No. Thank God. Pastor Roland has on blue jeans. Thank God. Is that all truth? No. So is it deception to say Pastor Roland has on a red shirt? Not necessarily. Not intended to be deception. This is very important. Now listen, this is very, very, very important. Partial truth is deception. When it comes to Scripture, partial truth is deception. So... When Satan misled Eve in the garden, he said to her, did did God really say that you would die? He said, you will not die, but your eyes will be opened. If you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of life, your eyes will be opened and you'll know good from evil. Well, there was truth in that. She was not going to die immediately, physically. Whenever we disobey God, we don't just shrivel up like a vampire that hits the sunlight and burn up and blow away in the breeze. We keep on living. I tell you what, if if that did happen, folks would live different. Well, just think about if the consequences of our conduct were immediate, nobody would ever smoke another cigarette. Think about that. You sm- you, one puff, your lungs just go, and quit working, you, and you die. Marlboro will be out of business in the morning. Think about that. You commit adultery, and in the middle of your consummation, your heart just explodes out of your nose. There wouldn't be no more adulterous stuff going on, would they? You ask your kid, son, have you cleaned up your room? And from the other side of the door you hear, yes, sir. And the room looks like dinosaurs have trudged through it. (laughs) Well, all of a sudden, it'd be different if consequences were immediate. But because consequences are delayed, we think we're safe. The consequences of the death the serpent spoke of were spiritual in Eve's life and in the rest of humanity. And they were delayed consequences. So there was truth in it. The most effective lie is woven with truth. Deception. 
Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and deceive many. Most recently, we've had two very prominent cults arise in America. One was called Heaven's Gate in Rancho Santa Fe, California. The leader was a man named Marshall Applewhite. These cults always end up in disaster. They believed that a UFO was in the tail of the Hale-Bopp comet, and the UFO, which was a spiritual thing, was going to rapture them off the earth and help them to escape the end times the Bible talks about. So their version of the rapture which we're going to talk about in a little while, their version of the rapture was a UFO in the Hellbop Comet tail. Help me. Where do people get this stuff? Never mind, I know where. Thirty-nine people died. They took barbiturates and alcohol mixed, and in their drug-induced state, they all put plastic bags over their heads and suffocated. An ignominious end to a ridiculous, silly cult, because Marshall Applewhite was their Messiah. In a much more publicized uh, event that you will all know about, the Branch Davidians, led by a man named David, who named himself David Yahweh Koresh, one of the most blasphemous things I can think of, he led the Branch Davidians, their headquarters in Waco, Texas, uh, into a cult situation claiming to be the Messiah. And I'll tell you something else. There are several of these messianic-type figures around. And you know what? A lot of it, a lot of this cultic activity has to do with the glorification of the leader. And the leader, the leader puffs himself up to be this Messiah-type person. And a lot of times there is sexual activity involved in this and sexual freedom for the leader. Uh, in a lot of these cults, the leader gets to pick any woman in the congregation that he wants to be with, and sometimes even underage girls, and uh, have their way. That, that, I mean, you know, come on, guys, common sense. That can't be God. God, God, that can't be biblical or spiritual. God calls us to serve, not to glorify ourselves and put ourselves on a pedestal and claim to be the Messiah. Here's Jesus saying in the 24th chapter of Matthew, many will come and claim to be the Messiah. Well, in 1993, the Texas Coast Guard, the ATF, the FBI laid siege to their property. For 51 days, it resulted in the death of 82 Branch Davidians, women and children, and four ATF agents. These things never end well. But we see this, the point of this is that we see the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming true. I Googled in my office there just before church today. I was going to read you a list of all the messianic cults operating in America in the 20th century and, and forward. And there were too many to read. I wouldn't have time to read them. Think about that. The list just goes on and on and on and on and on. Reverend Moon, you went to the airport, had the Moonies try to sell you a flower. He's a messianic figure. He doesn't believe he's Jesus, but he does believe he's the second coming of Jesus. Which, that makes no sense either. Many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Today, we've got a crazy person running North Korea. And General Mattis, or whoever it was last week, I don't want to misspeak, one of our leaders called him a, f a fat kid <laughs> running North Korea, which he... <laughs> Yeah, which he considers now to be a declaration of war. He is purportedly in charge of a small arsenal of nuclear weapons, but I don't know that nuclear weapons and small really go together in the same sentence very well. He has launched several missiles, some successfully, some failures. The most uh, recent success crashed in the sea uh, just short of Japan. He has threatened repeatedly to do a first strike against the United States homeland. General Mattis now, for the first time, we're hearing a, a uh, United States military leader saying that North Korea must be stopped. Folks, listen, here's the, here's the chain of events if that happens. If e either we first strike North Korea or North Korea hits Japan or the Hawaii, then we're going to respond... If it's a nuclear device, we're going to respond with a nuclear device. Then China has to make a decision. 
are we going to join in this and defend our ally because North Korea is an ally of China. If China gets involved, then it's going to go global. Now, Ezekiel 38 and 39 speaks to a war that is going to happen that I believe from the text of the Scripture, and we'll do this if I do another end time series, you can read it, Ezekiel 38 and 39. I believe there's going to be nuclear, biological, and chemical. I think every weapon known to man in the next war, every single thing we've got is going to be thrown at one another. It's going to be very bad, and there won't be a whole lot of people that will survive it. I, I really do believe that on a global scale. I'm not trying to frighten you today, but everybody say this. Say, preacher, truth is truth, no matter how I feel about it. Now, that will set you free right there. We don't have to have an emotion about truth. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't like to hear about this stuff because it just makes me, oh, stop. We just need to know this. We just need to know this. Jesus wouldn't have talked about it his last week of life if it weren't important for us to know. See to it that you are not alarmed. See, wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. What's going on in the Middle East is always going to be the focal point of the world. It's always going to be the focal point of prophetic history. What's going on in the Middle East could at any moment emerge into a, a, conflir, a conflagration of nuclear power. So we always need to be praying for the peace and protection of Israel. But he said such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We're seeing that today. Not just nations, but kingdoms rising against one another. Not too many years ago, tribes were rising against each other. The Hutus and the Tutsis in Africa, uh, almost a half a million people were killed and hundreds of thousands of dead bodies were dumped in a lake in Africa and polluted the river system. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. You are aware now that the radiation from the Fukushima radiation, radioactive uh, fallout, uh, underground fallout from the Fukushima radiation plant in Japan has now reached the east coast, the west coast of the United States. And they're saying that it's uh, very possible that the latest reports, they burned up two robots that went down into the hole to try to determine what's going on. The radiation was so powerful, within, within just an hour or two, the robots were non-functional. And the terms that they're using for the amount of radiation that's leaking out into the ocean is terms like incomprehensible. Think about that. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Who is you here? He's talking about Christ's followers. All the way down through history, that includes you and me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Now, I could preach for an hour on that. I just want to warn us all not to become unduly influenced by the tide of evil and wickedness that is so prevalent in our society today. Can I just challenge you to do a little less scrolling, do a little less surfing, and do a little bit more reading in the Word of God? Can I encourage you to get off the web and get into the closet of prayer? Can I encourage you to stay abreast of what's happening, but don't be consumed by it? Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now stop right there and let me explain an element of end-time prophecy to you. A lot of people believe that before Jesus can come back, every person and every nation has to have television or internet and has to be uh, gospel-preached so that every person could hear the gospel preached. And, and that's never, and Jesus is not going to come back in the rapture until there's TV stations in every house and everybody can hear and read the gospel. Let me just tell you something. The Bible in the book of Revelation tells us that in the last days, at the end of things, angels are going to fly through the air all over the world and proclaim the gospel in every language. So this passage of Scripture is going to come to pass with or without television, with or without the Internet, with or without men, men's intervention. So the truth is, God's going to see that this happens before the end of all things. So don't, don't kid yourself that there's something keeping Jesus from coming back in the rapture. The rapture could happen right now. Nothing's stopping it from happening. And then the end will come. 
Now, some of these terms Jesus uses are not clearly delineated in this passage. So, in a few minutes, I'm going to show you a series of slides up here uh, that, and I'm not ready for them yet, but I will in a minute. They're going to try to show you as best we understand that the sequence, big picture now, just the big events in end times prophecy starting with the rapture. Uh, We believe the rapture is the very next thing that's going to happen. But I need to tell you that because of Jesus' wording and the phraseology that he uses in Matthew 24, when you compare that to the book of Revelation, you compare it to Ezekiel, you compare it to Daniel, because the best way to understand and interpret the Bible is to use the Bible itself as your aid and study. But end-time prophecy students, any one of them that tells you we know exactly, be careful, we don't know exactly, because a lot of these terms are ambiguous, a lot of these terms could mean more than one thing, a lot of these terms are vague, a lot of these terms, like in the book of Revelation, you're hearing three stories told at the same time. The story of ancient history, the story of the present time in John's day, and the story of the future, thousands of years after John died. So you have to be able to sort of balance these things and weave together the story. It's, it's, it's not crystal clear, guys. It's just not. But as best we think we know it, the rapture comes first. But I want to tell you something. I want you to listen to this. There is enough scripture in the Bible, there is enough that, that could refer to a mid-tribulation catching away as being the rapture to justify an argument for it. I personally, there, and, and listen, without any question, we do know that in the, in the tribulation there is going to be a catching away. That's clear. My personal belief is that that's a secondary catching away and that the rapture still occurs before the tribulation. But there is evidence, and there is enough evidence to make an argument for it, that the rapture could occur at the midpoint of tribulation. Some people believe the rapture is going to occur after the seven-year tribulation. I guess there's enough scripture, if you really wanted to torque it, that you could argue that too. But I'll give you what we believe and what I believe as the order of events here in just a minute. Now he says uh, something that's very ominous. He says in verse 15, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Now, this is a phrase that comes out of the book of Daniel that has caused a great deal of discussion and theological controversy over the years. What in the world did the prophet Daniel mean when he referred to the abomination that causes desolation? It sounds horrific. It sounds awful. I've heard all kinds of things postulated as what this could mean. Let me tell you my opinion. And that's all it is. There's there's not hard scripture that says, Behold now, this is the abomination that causes desolation. That verse isn't in the Bible. But here's what I think, for what it's worth. And my opinion is no more valuable than any other teachers or preachers. In the New Testament, one of the letters that was written... It is said that the man of lawlessness, who will be the Antichrist, is going to enter into the temple in Jerusalem or in Israel, into the temple, which we know there's not one now. So one's going to be rebuilt at some point. That's going to happen. And did you know the temple faithful is a group in Israel that are putting, they're already building the instruments. You you know this. They're they're recreating the instruments for temple worship. These snails... That they, that they got the blue ink from to make the priest blue, the blue patterns on the priestly garments. They, they've been, they haven't had any of these snails for centuries. All of a sudden, these snails have shown back up in Israel. So they're using them now to make the dye just like they did in the Old Testament to make the priestly garments for temple worship. They're categorizing and, and cataloging stones that can be used to actually build another temple in Israel. It is going to happen. When's it going to happen, Pastor? I don't know. But at some point in the future, the man of lawlessness, who we believe is the Antichrist, it says that he is going to walk into the temple, and in the temple, he is going to proclaim himself to be God. Now, my personal opinion is that is the abomination that causes desolation. That's just what I think. I can't think of anything more abominable 
than for the Antichrist to proclaim himself to be God in God's temple. So I think that's what it, what it probably will be. I could be wrong about that, but, but that's, I guess that's a guess is as good as any. So when you see this, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Flee where? Flee where? To the mountains. And you wonder why I teach bushcraft and survival. Let those on the housetop, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Don't even go in your house. Just run now. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Why not in winter? Because it's cold. Why do you think my next bushcraft class is going to be on how to make fire? (laughs) For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now, just think about that phrase coming from the Son of God's mouth. And if anybody knows what's going to happen, it's him because he's God and he's orchestrating it. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. My, my, my. And just think about how bad the flood was. And the flood's nothing compared to this. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of who? Who's the elect? Us. If we're faithful. Liars, adulterers, pornographers, thieves, gossips, slanderers, they're not going to be the elect. If it were not for the sake of the elect, those days would be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, there is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great, and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And perform great signs and wonders. What does Revelation say about the false prophet? It says he's going to call down fire from heaven and the whole world's going to see it. Now, I've heard people say this is a counterfeit miracle. The Bible doesn't say anything of the kind. He is going to call down fire from heaven on full live television and on streamed on the Internet, and it's going to be visible to people all over the world, and he's going to deceive people by the millions, possibly by the billions, because of the signs and the wonders. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, if a prophet appears among you and he announces a miraculous sign, and the sign which he has announced comes to pass, and then he says, let us go follow after other gods, you are not to follow this prophet. If I ask in, in churches across America, if I were able to ask every church, And every parishioner, every attendee, one question today. And I could ask them, what is the number one proof that a prophet is really a prophet of God? 95 plus percent of the people in the pews of this country would say, if his prophecy comes to pass. And a false prophet can have a sign, a wonder, or a prophecy come to pass. So then what is the sign of a true prophet? Not signs and wonders. Is he teaching true biblical doctrine? That's the sign of a prophet. Is, does what he say line up with the word of God? Always remember that. Don't follow anybody because he can perform a sign or a wonder. And then Jesus says this. Verse 25. See, I've, hold, I've told you ahead of time. Jesus, I've told you ahead of time. Here he is. Two or three days from the crucifixion, he knows what's going to happen. And he's taking the time to have this discourse with his disciples on the end times. And in the middle of it, he says, see, I'm warning you. I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm preparing you to face the future. I'm equipping you to deal with an unknown future. I'm investing in you because I love you. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he says this strange little phrase. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. You know, Jesus had a a habit of saying strange things. One day his disciples came to him and said, Master, there's some Gentiles out here that want to talk to you. You know how he responded? He said, if a grain of wheat falls to the ground. And if it dies, it bears many grains. But if it does not fall to the ground and die, 
it does not bear any fruit. And the disciples are like, is that, is that yes or no? <laughs> Here in the middle of this big discourse, he says, wherever, wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Ah! Well, well, that's true. Why did he say that? It's kind of an enigmatic phrase. He says this to engender within the minds of his followers, I believe, a scene of an apocalyptic disaster. Because when all this happens, it's going to... Listen to me. When all this starts happening, it's going to happen fast. It's going to be... You're going to wake up one morning, and the whole world before the sun goes down is going to be different in one day. Did you know that the Bible says that the enemies of Israel are going to gather around to make war against her, and in one hour, Israel is going to destroy all of them on the mountains that surround Israel? This thing is going to happen fast. Once it starts, it's going to be like a snowball. It's not going to be slow. It's going to, it's going to ramp up like an out-of-control locomotive, and it's going to be on us. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. Y'all know it's going to be cold next winter, don't you? I'm not trying to scare you. It's just going to happen. Y'all know it's going to be hot this summer, don't you? We're all going to sweat like pigs. I'm not trying to scare you. It's just going to happen. Whereas the lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let's start with the, with the chart, Ella, if you will. Man, our, our media team is so great. I brought Ella this thing this morning, and she didn't bat an eye. She just typed that thing up for me. Here's the first part of the sequence of events as we know it. The next thing on the, on the eschatological agenda is the rapture. What is the rapture? The rapture is the great catching away of the saints. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says it like this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So that means that all the people who are Christians who are in the ground are going to come out of the ground in glorified bodies and they're going to rise to meet Jesus in the air. Now, I do not know the answer to the question, why is God going to do that? Because they're already in heaven. So why is he going to reanimate their bodies and reconnect their spirit with their body and give them a glorified body and then elevate them to meet Jesus in the air when the rapture comes? It's very clear in Scripture that's how it's going to happen. I've had people say, why is God going to do that, Pastor? My answer to that is, I don't know. Because God's motive for doing that is nowhere in the Bible. I have an opinion. My opinion is, God sometimes just likes to make a statement. He didn't say, I'm going to create a bird. He said, I'm going to put a rainbow in the clouds. God likes to make statements. How many of you ever seen a beautiful sunset? Just mind-blowing. How many of you have been to the Smoky Mountains? Yeah, God. How many of you have been to the ocean? God likes to make statements, man. How many of you have seen my wife? God likes to make statements. I might not be a smart man. <laughs> God likes to make a statement. I believe the rapture and the, and the people rising from the ground is nothing more than a statement of God's greatness. I'm being God because I can be God. I tell you what, we ought to look for statements from God in our lives. Some of you need money. You start tithing. You start walking right before God. You, we had a testimony about this in the green room today. You start believing God. You start doing what you're supposed to do. God, who is Jehovah Jireh, is going to make a statement in your life. Some of you need healing. God's about to make a statement in your life. We had a testimony this morning of God healing somebody through a phone call. I don't necessarily believe the Holy Ghost had to go through the telephone, but I believe the Holy Ghost was present in that room, and through prayer, He touched that person, and now they're healed. God likes to make statements. I think if you believe God, He'll make a statement in your life. If you trust God, He'll make a statement in your, in your family, in your finances, in your health, in your attitude. Some of you need to have God make a statement in your attitude. We, 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 we find ourselves negative. We find ourselves bitter and angry and frustrated. And, and I'm not going to ask for hands to be raised, but I, I've seen a whole bunch of people walking around with this slow, bubbly field of lava underneath a thin, crusty veneer of civility. And I want to ask them, what's made you so angry? And you know what? A lot of them, the truth is, they don't even know. Because life can just grate on you. And people... I know this has never happened to any of y'all, but I've found that people can disappoint you. None of you understand that. I do, but you don't. 
People can disappoint you. People can hurt you. People, James Taylor wrote an old song called You Got a Friend. Way back in the day. Part of that song says, People can be so cruel. They'll hurt you and desert you. Well, they'll take your soul if you let them. Oh, yeah. Don't you let them. That's good advice. Why are we so angry? Some of us need to be healed on the inside. God's about to make a statement in your life. But I'll tell you what, he's not going to make a statement because you're standing in front of a manhole spitting fury at the world. God is going to make a statement when you get on your knees and pray and repent for being angry and put your finger on the why and get over it and get healed and get going forward in your walk with God. Don't wait to the rapture. Let God make a statement in your life now and have some peace in your existence. The rapture. Immediately on the heels of the rapture, comes a seven-year period of time called the tribulation. Now, the Bible breaks it up into two parts. The first part is simply referred to in Scripture as the tribulation. I could give you all, I could give you all these Scriptures, and if I do an end-time series, I do, and we turn to the Bible and we read them. I don't have time to do that this morning, so this is just for expedience sake. I'm not giving you all the Scriptures, but it's in there. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is called the tribulation. Very quickly, if you'll turn in the book of Revelation... To chapter 6, I will read you what is going to be happening in the first three and a half years. It is widely believed in the tribulation. Revelation 6, I'm going to read through this quickly. As I watched the Lamb open the first of seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come, I looked, and there was before me a white horse. His rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, been on conquest. Many people think that this rider is Jesus. It is not it is the Antichrist. In Scripture, Jesus never uses a bow, and he is not given a crown. He has earned many crowns. He is crowned with many crowns, and Jesus always in Scripture has a sword. So in the context of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, all of them bring disaster. I believe this first one is the Antichrist, not Jesus. And the Lamb opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So we've got the Antichrist moving forward now, and we've got the spirit of war. And the Lamb opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This black horse represents famine. So you have the, the Antichrist, you have war, and you have famine. And on the heels of that, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and hell was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth. One-fourth, one-fourth of the population of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. So you've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're not wrestlers. They're the seals of the first three and a half years of the tribulation, which takes place right after the rapture. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of the souls who had been slain because the word of God, the testimony that had been maintained, they cried out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. The number of their fellow servants were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now, if you turn to chapter 16, I'm sorry, chapter 8, my bad. I'm doing this from memory. The seventh trumpet serves to do nothing but usher in seven more judgments. And these are seven seals. The first are seven seals. The second are seven trumpets. I'm sorry. So the seventh seal ushers in the seven trumpet judgments. These could be in the first 
three and a half years, or they could be in the second three and a half years. It's unclear. I'm going to go ahead and read them to you now. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's for all the people who like boring church. After that, they're going to turn it back to the Pentecostals. Anyway, another... I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel had a golden censer. He offered much incense. Verse 6, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood that was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth, listen to this now, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, what's going to happen to the oxygen level when that happens? What's going to happen to the animal life when there's no grass? There's already famine running. Now we've got these seals that make it worse. These things are going to happen. Listen, these aren't allegorical Bible stories that, well, it's just a Bible story. These things are going to happen. And they're going to be real events, just like the Bible says. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. This third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea, a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and the third of the ships were destroyed. Now, what is this big mountain all ablaze? Nobody knows for sure. I personally believe it is either an asteroid or a comet or a big meteor, meteorite, that comes and hits into the ocean and causes all kinds of devastation. I'll be honest with you. Part of this sounds like to me it could be the aftermath of Fukushima or something like it. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Strange. Don't know what that means. We know know what Wormwood means, but we don't know what it means in this context. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. So So the word bitter there actually means poisonous and toxic. A third of the waters. And this is fresh water. Only, I used to be in this business, I used to be the water manager for a city and the wastewater manager for a plant. So in my studies for that, I learned that only one-tenth of one percent of the world's water supply is fresh, potable drinking water. One-tenth of one percent. Now, a third of that's going to be gone. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, also a third of the night. Now, this could mean that, that something happens to dim the sun and the moon's effect by 30% or so. What could this be, Pastor? It could be several things. It could be enough volcanic eruptions. It could be the result of nuclear winter after a nuclear thermonuclear exchange among nations. That's going to be one of the bad things. If the thermonuclear exchange is bad enough... The fallout not only will be radioactive, but the ash and the fires will produce enough smoke and soot and ash in the atmosphere that it could produce a global winter. Did you realize that way back in history, there already has been a kind of global winter? There was a year from a volcanic eruption, and it devastated Europe. Almost no crops grew because it was cold all all summer long. In some places, it snowed in June. It was really bizarre, and it was all the result of one volcano erupting. Imagine what a a global thermonuclear exchange of significant proportions could be. The bomb we dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. That's the equivalent of 15,000 tons of military-grade TNT. Russia has nuclear warheads now that are 100 megatons. That's the equivalent of 100 million tons of military-grade TNT. The explosive, concussive, devastating effect of one nuclear bomb that powerful it could actually shift the earth's orbit did you know that it could actually some scientists say they believe it could shift the earth's orbit some scientists say they believe it could actually tilt the earth on its axis it's and imagine a whole bunch of those going off all around the globe it would not be a good day i watched a herd an eagle that was flying in the midair call out in a loud voice whoa 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 feelings whoa 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 that's what he's saying to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet. I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key of the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Out of the smoke, locusts came. 
on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. So now what are these locusts? I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what, what this could be. Now you've got to remember John is trying to articulate visions he's seeing on the Isle of Patmos that, that include, I believe, events and, and things that he's never seen. I used to believe these were animals, and they may still be. But that was about as far as my thinking went on it. But I read something on the Drudge Report the other day that's made me include something else as a possibility in the net matrix of what these locusts could be. They're now coming out with miniature drones that look like animals. They've got one that looks like a bee. They've got one that looks like a dragonfly. They are now coming out with these miniature drone swarm bots, swarm bot armies. So there's going to be swarms of them that come out. So now this, this abyss... And these locusts could actually be military robotic drones that are sent out to seek and find people who don't have the seal of God in their forehead and torture them. Isn't it going to be funny? God's not going to let anybody die for five months just so they can be tortured. A loving God wouldn't do that. Stop making up God. I read a thing the other day, and this person read all this scripture about what was going to happen, and somebody responded, I, I just don't believe a loving God would do all that. It, it, it doesn't matter. You can believe there's a porcupine in my hip pocket. There's not one. People think that because they believe it, it's true. We've got to stop living in the world of social media where if we like something, then that's, we, hit, we have the power to hit the like button. And that makes it okay. We've got to stop living in the, in the artificial world where people's opinions... Rule everything. You're going to be surprised next Sunday when I talk about that. A lot of what Jesus went through in his last week, his very crucifixion and torture to death, had to do with people's opinions as much as anything else. We can't make up what we think God's going to be like. We've got to go to his word and find out what he's already told us he's going to do. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold. Their faces resemble human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing in the battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And their tails, they had the power to torment people for five months. They had his king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name is Hebrew. In Greek, that is the destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, heard a voice from coming from God. From the four horns of the golden altar, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. Now listen to this. The four angels who'd been kept ready for this very hour and day and month. So there are four angels at the Euphrates River right now. And they've been there since God put them there, and they're still there. We can't see them, but they're there right now. And they're waiting for a specific time. And what it says is, in verse 15, the four angels who've been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of, man, of mankind. How are they going to do that? Everybody thinks that angels are going to suddenly appear and start hacking people with a sword. No, the angels are in charge of making this happen. The next verse tells us how it's going to happen. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. That's 200 million. The only nation on the face of the earth that could field an army of 200 million foot soldiers is China. So China is going to march across the earth, and China is going to be responsible for the death of a third of the people on the planet. That's just going to happen. And then it goes on to describe the horses, uh, which who knows what these things represent. I don't have time to get into the imagery. I'm running out of time now. Look at verse 20, though. It's an amazing verse. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Think about that. All these things that have come upon the earth and men are not going to repent. Nor did they repent of their murders. They didn't stop their idolatry, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And we're going to read the last seven judgments that are going to be poured out in Revelation 16, and then I'll wrap this up. 
And these, I believe, now we've got so far, we've got the rapture, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. I put mid-tribulation in there in this list because many significant events happen at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into it. One is the Antichrist, who at the first, and you're going if, if, to, if the rapture doesn't happen first, here's how you'll know we're in the tribulation, okay? There's going to be a great leader, and I used to think, oh, he might be a, a, a Catholic a pope. He might be from the European common market. Then it was the European Union. But I have come to think that the Antichrist could possibly, and nobody knows his identity, but I think there's a very good possibility he could be a powerful Muslim leader. But he is not going to come saying, kill the Christians. He's going to come as a man of peace. Now, who in the world could unite Israel with all her surrounding Arab countries, Muslim countries, other than a great Muslim leader? I believe this is the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, the Mahdi that the Muslims are fighting right now to bring forth. Their Mahdi is the counterpart, the counter person to the true Jesus who is going to return. And they think if they create enough chaos in the world that the Mahdi will return and bring peace to the earth. Who could bring peace between Muslims and Israel other than a great Muslim leader? So I think that's a very good possibility. I'm not saying it is going to be so. I think it's a good possibility. He's going to sign a peace accord with Israel to start the tribulation. When the leaders of Israel and this great Antichrist, he's not, look, the, 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 the news isn't going to say today we're going to cover the Antichrist. It's not going to say that. You know, the mark of the beast comes out tomorrow. It's not going to say that. But whoever this great leader is, is going to sign a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. That's what you need to be looking for if the rapture doesn't happen before all this. A great leader proclaiming peace between Israel and all her surrounding Muslim nations. Seven-year peace accord. Then you'll know, okay, we were wrong about the rapture happening first. It didn't happen. It's going to happen to the midpoint or sometime later. And now the tribulation is going to begin. So, Pastor Roland, where are you going? (laughs) At mid-tribulation, angels, the two witnesses begin their ministry. And we won't have the time to talk about that. But at the mid-tribulation, the big event is the, the great leader who made peace with Israel for seven years is going to break that peace treaty. He's going to turn against Israel, and he's going to try to destroy them. Many other things happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then the last three and a half years of the tribulation, I believe these seven bowls are poured out, possibly part of the trumpet judgments, and these bowls, I don't think these bowls last very long because as bad as they are, if they lasted very long, nobody would survive it. Look, look at how severe these, these seven bowls are. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now let me just stop and tell you something about the mark of the beast. Revelation clearly tells us that there are two things for which, well, the book of Revelation doesn't say this, but the Bible tells us there are two things for which you can never be forgiven. God will forgive any sin except these two. One is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and the other is taking the mark of the beast. Revelation is very clear. If we take the mark of the beast, we will never get into heaven no matter what we do after the fact. Now, I want to say that again. If you take, or your children, if you take the mark of the beast, you will never be allowed to go to heaven. You will spend eternity burning in hell. How do we know what the mark of the beast is, Pastor? Nobody knows specifically what it is. I know this. It will be something that's placed in your hand or your forehead. And without it, you will not be able to buy or sell anything, which means you're going to have to flee to the hills and know how to survive off the land, which is why I teach bushcraft and survival classes. I believe it's going to be a computer chip. I don't think anybody's going to come out with a tattoo of 666. I don't believe it's going to be the barcode. I think it's going to be a computer chip. I think it's going to be injected into your right hand because the, on the bottom of your hand, your palm print is identification. The top of the plant of your hand, the reader can read the chip, so it's a positive idea of who you are and what your bank account says. The same with the forehead. There'll be a chip planted here somewhere, maybe between your eyes, I don't know. But the retinal scan will identify who you are, and the chip will hold your information. All right? So don't ever accept anything under the... Under the and then nobody's going to call it the mark of the beast. Come get your mark of the beast today. They're going to call it some other thing that makes it seem harmless. But if you can't buy or sell without it, if it goes in your hand or your forehead, don't ever even take a chance. I mean, when I was a kid at 12 years old, I didn't want the lady at the gate at Six Flags to stamp my hand so I could get back in. They're like, 
The second angel poured his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, coagulated, dark blood. And listen to this. Every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl in the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So there's no drinking water. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one. And go on down. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, and they refused to repent and glorify him. Can you think, don't say anything out loud, but can you think of any group of people that seems that mean-spirited, hard-hearted, and rebellious against God in the world today? I can. Sounds just like them to me. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony. And curse the God of heaven. Curse the God of heaven. You might think and say, oh, Lord, please take this from us. Oh, God, you've proven yourself mighty. Nah. Ah! People are crazy. I think I'll gnaw my tongue and curse God. That'll, that'll solve my problems. Because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They're demonic spirits that perform signs. They perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. The seventh angel, down to verse uh, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. And it goes on to talk about that. Now, I want to go back to this. So we have the rapture, the three and a half years of tribulation, the mid-tribulation, and the last three and a half years of tribulation, which the Bible refers to as Jacob's trouble. It's going to be horrible. Virtually, very few people are really going to be left alive at the end of this thing. I think three-fourths of the earth's population is going to be dead. So maybe 25% of the world is going to be still surviving. You can go to the next slide. After the three and a half tri- year, after the tribulation, at the end of that seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns to the earth. At the rapture, he didn't come all the way to the earth. This time he comes to the earth to fight the battle of Armageddon, for which those three frog spirits gathered the people at the valley of Megiddo. This is a literal battle. The Bible says that blood's going to be as high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles. After the battle of Armageddon, Satan, the beast, the false prophet, are bound and thrown into the bottomless pit. There is a thousand-year reign with Christ. That's the millennial reign. At the end of the millennial reign, there is a final battle with Satan. And Satan, the beast and the false prophet, are then cast into the lake of fire where they're trapped and burned forever. Then there's what's called the great white throne judgment. Only the wicked dead will be judged at the great white throne judgment, and they will be cast into the lake of fire along with hell, death, and the grave. Hell is actually going to be cast into the lake of fire too. And then there's a new heaven and the new earth, and that's where we live with Jesus forever. A lot of people think when, you, when all this wraps up, we go to heaven, and we sit on clouds in an angelic suit, we grow wings like Clarence the angel and It's a Wonderful Life, and we play a harp and float on clouds. That's not how it's going to be. We're going to live on the new earth in the holy city with God forever and ever and ever, and that's where we're going to be. So going back to this idea of the last week of Jesus' life, Why did Jesus tell his disciples all of this in the final week of his life? What was his reason? And Kelly, if you'll come play on the keyboard. Here's what I think. I think Jesus was saying, and and there are many more. I didn't even get to read chapter 25. I'm just out of time. Go home and read Matthew chapter 25. The whole chapter is, is dedicated to the idea of preparation, being prepared for these events. I believe that the reason that Jesus told the disciples these things was to prepare them to get them ready to let them know hey I'm coming now I'm not trying to be elitist or anything like that but there's a whole bunch of churches in America that just won't deal with this kind of stuff anymore because it it frightens people it scares people it upsets people what is partial truth is deception. To only cherry pick the Word of God. To only preach the parts of the Bible that make people happy and make them excited. 
and give them a false sense of security without preaching the parts of the Bible that tell us the things that are going to come on the earth is to deceive humanity. And ministers who do that do not deserve to stand behind this sacred desk. We have to understand what is going to happen. These things I've told you today, they are going to happen. It is inevitable. They're going to come to pass. So what, what does this mean to us in 2017? Here's what it means to you and to me. We need to be doing everything we can to make sure every seat in this auditorium is full. Every service. We need to go all in. This is exactly why we need to be all in. I love what, what Pastor Brad said today. Man, just go all in. Just go all in with God. We need to be all in in our prayer and our Bible study and our giving. But you know one of the most important ways we need to be all in is in reaching out to people and simply inviting them to church. I know it's spring break, and I know that's why there's a lot of empty seats in here. But i got to tell you, as a pastor, it always bothers me to come into the auditorium and see a whole bunch of empty seats. Because that means there's people that should be there that aren't. And I'm not fussing at any of us, but what I'm saying is, can we ramp up? Can we take the bellows and stoke the fire in our heart to go out to people and say, Hey, man, our church is preaching the truth. God is dealing with people. You want to know what's going on and what's going to happen? We need, you need to come hear this, man. It's powerful stuff. And not just from me, but from many of the capable people, both behind the pulpit and out in the, out in the seats too. There's a lot of things happening that God needs to, needs to have an opportunity to share with people that you know. He's saying, You get prepared. He's saying, you prepare your heart and your life. You prepare your family. And then as much as you can, talk to your friends. Talk to the people at school. Talk to the people at work. Because all these events are going to happen. Jesus has one last week to live. It's Tuesday or Wednesday. He tells his disciples, man, the Passover is going to happen in in two days. And here's what I want to tell you. Here's part of my goodbye speech. Here's what's going to happen. Why would he do that? He did it to say, see, I've told you ahead of time. In other words, this is your warning. Be prepared. Get ready. And if all these things were imminent 2,000 years ago, how much closer are they today? I don't know about you, but the rapture doesn't frighten me a bit. It shouldn't frighten you. I would love to make my great escape. Never have to pay another bill. Go eat all the biscuits I want. Live in peace and joy. Never have another pain or moment of sorrow in my life. See all the people we love that have gone before. Man. I want to close with this. And I've said it many times. We all get to take one thing to heaven. Just one. And all of us get to take the same thing to heaven. And it's the only thing you can take to heaven. And that's the people you win to Christ. Can't guarantee you when the rapture is going to happen. Can't guarantee you we're not going to go through difficult days before it happens. But I can guarantee you this. When it's all over, we rule and reign with Christ. And that's what's important. Let me encourage you today. Go all in on your love and your compassion and your evangelizing and reaching out and witnessing to people who aren't fired up for God. Get them in the house of God with the best of your ability and reach them for Jesus Christ. Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together, I pray that the sober nature of this teaching that you gave us and these prophetic utterances you made to your disciples 2,000 years ago on the week before you were crucified, or the week that you were crucified, I pray that they will not make us discouraged or in any way sorrowful today, but instead I pray that they will put a sense of urgency in us Yes, we need to go all in in our personal devotional time. And yes, we need to go all in in our prayer and all in in Bible study and all in in church attendance and all in in our finances. But one of the most important ways that we as Christians need to be going all in is to get people in the house of God so they can hear the truth and they can come to know Jesus Christ so they can repent of their sins and surrender themselves to the Lordship of Christ. Now, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I can't end a service like this without giving somebody here today the opportunity to make things right with God because none of us knows when the rapture is going to take place we have no guarantees it won't happen before we can get home so with your heads bowed and your eyes closed I want to ask you the question of the ages and that is is Jesus Christ really Lord of your life or is there sin 
repetitive sin in your life. These events are going to happen. They're inescapable. They're going to take place. And Jesus told us these things so we would be ready. If you're here today and you know that there's sin in your life, you know it's there. And I'm not asking you for, to buy fire insurance, spiritually speaking. I'm asking you about your eternal future. The Bible clearly says there is one name given among men whereby we must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We don't get to make up our own beliefs, guys. We just don't. God's told us in his word what the truth is, and we have to accept that if we want to make it to eternity. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you the question, are you living a Christian life? If you're not, you know it immediately. I'm going to count to three. If there's sin in your life, you know you're not living a Christian lifestyle. You know there's sin there. When I get to three, I want you to lift your eyes and look at me. But I only want you to do it if you mean business with God. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Lift your eyes and look at me. Pastor, there is sin in my life and I know it. I see your eyes and your eyes and yours and yours and yours. Anybody else? Lift them up right now. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Lift them up right now. This is your moment. All right, I want to pray this prayer, and I want everybody in the house to pray it out loud behind me, just like this, and mean it with all your heart, especially those of you who lifted your eyes and looked at me. Mean this, and when we get through praying, you'll be just as clean and saved as anyone ever has been. Pray it like this, and mean it with all your heart. Heavenly Father, You know everything about me. I confess it all. But more than just confess, I repent. And repentance means more than I'm sorry. I turn to you, Jesus. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Wash me clean by your blood. I accept you into my heart as my Savior and Lord. From this moment forward, I belong to you, and I will never go back to a sinful life. I believe your word when you said, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Right now, I am a new creation in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Let's give God praise. Come on. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.